Thank you, Jackie. We're in Genesis chapter 11, verses 27 to 32, as we're continuing our study through the book of Genesis. And, and I want to read this illustration to begin. If miracles are impossible, then the resurrection of Jesus could not have occurred, and we must look for some natural explanation of the events. But if miracles are at least possible, then we can uh, be open to following the evidence without bias. In other words, whenever we hear of an event that seems contrary to the laws of nature, we naturally raise our guard. But we are also uh, shouldn't prejudice the evidence by ruling out the possibility of miracles just because they don't fit our categories. It's unscientific to decide the outcome of an investigation before examining the facts. Consider the following true story. Near the end of the 18th century, the Western world first encountered the duck-billed platypus. You see a picture of it there this morning. The platypus, which is indigenous to Australia, has uh, fur over its entire body, is the size of a rabbit, and has webbed feet. Yet since it lays eggs, it reproduces like a reptile. When the skin of a platypus was first brought to Europe, it was uh, greeted with complete amazement. Was it a mammal or a reptile? The platypus seems so bizarre that, be, that despite the physical evidence of the skin and the testimony of the witnesses, many Londoners dismissed it as a sham. Not until a pregnant platypus was shot and brought to London for observers to see with their own eyes did people begin to believe. Until this happened, some of the greatest thinkers refused to accept the existence of the platypus. The initial problem was that it did not fit their, some people's view of how the world operated. So they rejected it and then reached a verdict even though the weight of the evidence said otherwise. Isn't that interesting? To think about back in the 18th century, you know, they were like, mm-mm, it's just, it's not natural. It's, it, we've never seen anything like it before. It can't be real. It's got to be a sham. And so um, we're going to be talking, the title of the message today is On the Move. And um, so most of you know that uh, Judy and I met in college. We married uh, after our junior year of college. Then uh, once we graduated, we moved to South Florida. And uh, I worked in the secular business world in finance, and uh, Judy was a school teacher. And after living in Florida for three years, we moved back to Ohio to the town where Judy grew up in Finley and lived there for six years and worked with Child Evangelism Fellowship. And then we moved to Missouri and lived there for four years, um, again, working at the headquarters of Child Evangelism Fellowship. And then uh, from Missouri, uh, after living there four years, we moved to California, to Southern California, where we spent three years working with the children's ministry there. And uh, then we moved to Pennsylvania from California and have lived here for almost 12 years. And this is like coming home for me because most of my uh, cousins and my aunts and uncles all live in South Central Pennsylvania. So you could say that we were on the move, but we're grateful to have settled down here. Uh, we just enjoy where we are right now. And with moving out so much, it would seem like it would be impossible to establish any lasting relationships. But through God's grace, we were able to establish some pretty incredible relationships that have stood the test of time. While we may not talk to those individuals on a weekly basis, the times that we do talk to them or when we get together, it's like we've never left each other's company. You know, we have some friends from Southern California. I still talk to them. One of those couples that we were close with moved to Oregon, and we still keep in contact with them. And we have uh, family and friends in Ohio and Missouri that we uh, know that we can call on at any point. And we still have some really good friends from... Uh, South Florida as well. And so that's just the incredible grace of God at work. His grace is able to accomplish what seems humanly impossible. 
And so how uh, have we all experienced the incredible grace of God doing the impossible? I want you to be thinking about that today. Perhaps it's been through a relationship or through, physical, through the physical world. Maybe it's been through spiritual or emotional ways that you've seen the grace of God do what seems humanly impossible in your life. In Genesis chapter 11, verses 27 to 32, we see the introduction to a long section that will highlight the origins or the account of Abraham. We'll see that Abraham's family, including his father and brothers, were on the move. We'll see um, that what seemed humanly impossible, God was able to accomplish through his grace. And my prayer is that when you leave here today, you will understand our big idea, which is God's grace accomplishes what seems humanly impossible. As we think about that, as you just begin to, to contemplate that big idea today, would you just bow your heads with me as we commit this message to the Lord? Lord, this is your word. And we thank you that we have the privilege and the freedom to be able to open it on a, on a Sunday and dive into it, Lord God, and learn what you want us to learn. I pray that we wouldn't take that freedom and that privilege for granted today. Lord God, I pray too that that the people here would hear your voice and not mine. Now, Lord God, would I not say anything that isn't from you? And if I do, Lord, in my humanness, would you just uh, cause your people not to even remember it, but they'd only remember your word. And so we just commit this time to you now, this, this sacred time of looking at your holy word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 27, uh, the first part of that, we just see this is the account of uh, Tarak. And so as I've been mentioning, uh, there's 10 different, uh, the Hebrew word is toledot, and there's 10 of these statements, toledot statements in the book of Genesis. This is the sixth one of the 10. Uh, as I mentioned last week, this toledot is the, it means the history of, the generations of, the account of, or the origins of. It could be any of those uh, words that you want to use. But um, here, this account of Abraham will continue through Genesis chapter 25, verse 11. So this is a real long uh, statement of the account of, it's actually Tarak, but it's, it's Abraham's story. And what we see, uh, again, is uh, this is Abraham's father who's mentioned in verse 27a. But let's look at uh, this passage of Scripture. And, um, whoops. This morning, this is what God's word says, beginning at verse 27. This is the account of Terak. Terak became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. While uh, his father Terak was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. Abraham and Nahor both married. The name of Abraham's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Yiscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terak uh, took his son Abraham, his grandson Lod, and uh, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abraham. And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Karan, they settled there. Tarak lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. So this is the passage we're going to be looking at this morning. And so we want to uh, just break it down a little bit and talk uh, about this genealogy. We see Tarak's sons. Now, we were already introduced to them last week um, in verse 26. 
They're mentioned again here. It's Abraham, it's Nahor, and Haran. And we see Haran's children. He is the father of Lot. He's also the, the father of Milcah and Yiscah. And we see in the second, as we see in the second half of verse 29. Now, Milcah's name means queen. That's pretty cool, and uh, I'll explain a little bit more about that in just a moment. Yiska's name means one who looks forth or looks out. And so um, then we see that Abraham and Nahor both married. I mean, we need to address one thing before we talk about Abraham and Nahor's wives. There's a word called endogamy. That's just a big word for marriage within a family group. So what we call that today is incest. And Waltke points out that there was no laws against this kind of incest in patri patriarchal times. Now, today we wouldn't do that uh, like they did in ancient times. This is important as we look at who the wives of Abraham and Nahor are. So Abraham married Sarai, which her name means princess. So queen and princess, just keep those in mind because we're going to talk about that in just a moment as we get further into this passage. Her father, so Sarai's father was Tarak. Abraham's father, but her mother was not the same woman as Abraham's mother. We see that in Genesis chapter 20, verses 11 to 13. This is what God's word says. Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. And so one other thing we, that we learned about Abraham's wife, Sarai, is that she's barren. Now, we've talked all along through the various genealogies that God is fulfilling his plan of redemption by choosing certain men in their lines to accomplish his purpose of sending a savior. Yet, here we read that Sarai, the wife of God's chosen man, is barren. So that it begs the question, how will God's plan of sending a Savior be fulfilled through a couple who can't even have children? Well, that leads us to our big idea. God's grace accomplishes what seems humanly impossible. Now, we're obviously getting ahead of the narrative, and I don't want to jump too far into the coming weeks, but be, because we have God's word, the Bible, we know that eventually Abraham and Sarah are able to conceive and have Isaac, through whom the chosen line will continue. So God's doing the supernatural. He's doing what seems humanly impossible by his grace. There was a young couple that attended the church, attended Prince Street while my father was pastoring there over in Chippensburg. And Judy and I have a, a couple from college that we know, and they both experienced the same scenario. Both couples tried for many years to have a child, to conceive a child, but were unsuccessful. And, you know, they had to wrestle through these feelings of disappointment this feelings of grief, like, why, God? Why can't we have a child of our own? And, and when they finally just gave it over to the Lord, when they finally just submitted to his plan and his will for their lives at this point, um, they en embraced adoption, both couples, and brought a child into their home. And in a short time after they did that, both couples conceived and had a, a natural child, a biological child of their own. I don't understand God's plans. I don't understand why he allows that kind of stuff to happen except for his glory, that we might rejoice in that. But he is just this God who uh, accomplishes what seems humanly impossible by his grace. And perhaps every one of us has an example of how we have experienced God's grace accomplishing the impossible 
And I want you to take a moment to just reflect on that this morning. When was a time that you experienced God's grace accomplishing what seemed humanly impossible? Maybe it's something physical or emotional that you experienced. Maybe it was relational or spiritual, financial. I don't know what it was, occupational. I'm reminded of how God's grace accomplished what seemed humanly impossible when I was working on my master's degree. Working full-time here at the church, had a, a young family at the time, and <clears throat> the three boys, and, uh, you know, trying to minister to people in the church as well, trying to find time to, to prepare the message for Sunday mornings, and I just was blown away by God's grace and how what seems humanly impossible to get all my schoolwork done and all my other regular work done, God did by his power by his grace and his mercy. And so I just rejoice in that fact today. And, and maybe you have thought about the situation where you've seen God's grace do what seems humanly impossible. And so maybe you're ready to take this next step with me today. And it's the very first one on the back of your communication card. It says to glorify the Lord for accomplishing what seems humanly impossible by his grace. We just need to glorify him. And maybe I would just encourage you, maybe over lunch today, to just share with your family members or if you're going out with someone else, your friends, share with them the, how God did that. How did he accomplish what seems humanly impossible? Share that. Glorify God together. Rejoice together in what, what God has done by his power. Perhaps there are those of us here today who are still waiting to experience God's grace, accomplishing what seems humanly impossible. As I mentioned last week, some of us may be waiting for God to accomplish the supernatural transformation of a loved one. We've been praying for them for their salvation, and we're just continuing to wait. We're continuing to cry out to him. Perhaps there's a couple here or a couple listening online who are trying to conceive a child without success. I just want to encourage you today, don't lose heart. Don't doubt God's grace and his timing for you. Don't marginalize or discount um, other options that God may be guiding you towards. There may be some here today who are struggling with anxiety and depression and have lost hope, but be encouraged and don't doubt that God can and will accomplish what seems humanly impossible. What, happiness, right? I'm depressed, I'm down, I'm, I'm feeling anxious about all this stuff. I'm not happy right now. God can accomplish that. He's there for you and with you in the deepest, darkest valleys. Maybe some of us are struggling spiritually, financially, educationally, occupationally. And I just want to here, I'm here today to encourage you, don't lose heart. Hold on. God can and will accomplish what is humanly impossible by his grace and power. And maybe you just need to claim that today because you're not feeling it. You're not feeling it, and feelings can change all the time. But we can hold and stand firm on the truths of God's word. And maybe you just need to do that second next step today, and that's to claim the promise and truth that God's grace can accomplish what seems humanly impossible. Claim that truth. Hold on to it. Write it down. Put it in your wallet, in your purse. Hang it on your mirror. Put it in your dashboard, wherever you need to do it, to see it and be reminded that you can claim this truth and this promise that God's grace can accomplish what seems humanly impossible. You see, God is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's never late. He's never early. He's always right on time. And we've learned now about Abraham's wife, but we're also given information about Nahor's wife. His wife's name is Milcah, which means queen, as I mentioned earlier. Nahor married his niece since she was the daughter of Haran. And we're not given any uh, more information about Milcah in this passage, but in Genesis chapter 22, uh, verses 20 to 23, we learn about her and Nahor's children. This is what God's word says. Sometime later, Abraham was told Milcah is also a mother. 
She has born sons uh, to your brother Nahor, Uts, the firstborn, Booz, his brother, Kemuel, the father of Aram, Kased, Hakso, Pildash, Yidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah. Milcah bore these eight sons to Abraham's brother Nahor. And so this completes the genealogical part of this passage, but now we see that some of them are on the move. We see that in verse 30, 31. So the second point this morning is going. Those on the journey are Tarak, Abraham, and Sarai, and Lot. And then we see these locations of this journey. Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, scholars are split on the location of Ur of the Chaldeans. Some believe it's in the northern Mesopotamia, close to Haran. Or Haran. Others believe it was in southern Mesopotamia along the Euphrates River. I want you to uh, do a little exercise with me this morning. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to the very back and see if you can find some maps there? See if you can find the very first map. Most of the time, it's the very first map. Mine says, Map 1, World of the Patriarchs. And I want you to look there, and I want you to see if you can find Ur in that map. And in my Bible, it says southern Mesopotamia. It's down close to the Persian Gulf. And it says possible location of biblical Ur of the Chaldeans where Abraham's migration began. So most Bibles, if they have that map in there, that's usually where they put it is in southern Mesopotamia. This is a, a map from out of the Bible software that I use. And again, when I typed in Ur, it came up in southern, it came up in southern Mesopotamia. And uh, we're going to be talking about these other places that you see there as well. But the blue line that you see there this morning is Abraham's journey from Ur of the Chaldeans up to Haran and then into Canaan. So let me give you a little more information about this. It would be 220 miles southeast of Baghdad in the southern part of modern Iraq. That's the location in southern Mesopotamia. And we're just going to hold to that one because most scholars do. Canaan then, uh, that's where they were on their way to. We don't know why Tarak uh, was going there, but next week we'll see the call of Abraham to leave Haran and continue to Canaan. So that's over by the Mediterranean. It's where modern-day Israel is at today. And then we see this other location that's on the uh, top part, the northern part there, which is Haran. It would be located on the bank of the Bilik River, 550 miles northwest of Ur and close to the present-day Syrian-Turkish border. And it would have taken them about two months to make the trip from Ur to Haran if they traveled 10 miles per day. And the place uh, Haran should, be, should not be confused with Tarak's son's name, Haran. Now, these are two different Hebrew words. I put them both up there for you. Um, it may not be helpful for you, but <laughs> it's kind of neat to see the transliteration of the personal name. So that's the top one is the name of Tarak's son, Haran. So you see the transliteration, H-A-W-R-A-W-N. And then that's the Hebrew um, characters for that. And there's just a little difference between the Hebrew characters. Um, not a lot, but there's a little. And then the place name, um, you see it's K-A-W, so it's like a cut like clearing your throat. Haran. So it's just a little bit different, but um, so it's not the exact same Hebrew word. They never made it to Canaan because they settled in Haran. And there's one important note about uh, two of these locations that we need to look at. Both Ur and Haran were centers of pagan idolatry. 
And the people of those cities worshiped the moon god. And so when you see Sarai and Milcah, and their names meaning queen and princess, it's because of, of idol worship. It's because of pagan worship of the, the moon god. And we know that Abraham's family participated in this kind of idol worship because Joshua mentions it in his book, Joshua chapter 24, verses 2 and 3. This is what God's word says. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your forefathers, including Terak, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from uh, the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. Now there's something important that we need to understand from the ancient Near East and even up through the first century. is It was commonplace for family members to... Uh, to worship and follow the religious beliefs and practices of the Father. So the Father kind of set the, set the tone. I mean, that's so important in our day and age that fathers, you are the spiritual leaders of your household. You're the ones that should be leading your spouse and your children and your grandchildren into knowing who God is so that they can have a personal relationship with Jesus. And we see that here uh, playing out in the ancient Near East and in the first century. So it would have been, tra- uh, been tradition for Abraham to continue to worship the moon god even after traveling to Canaan. But something incredible happens. And we see it here in our big idea again that God's grace accomplishes what seems humanly impossible and against tradition. When God calls Abraham, as we'll see next week, he calls him out of idolatry and pagan worship. He sets him apart and chooses him to be the line through which the Savior of the world will come. God is all-powerful, and he's able to accomplish what seems humanly impossible. He transforms Abraham from a pagan to a patriarch, whose faith is highlighted by the writer of Hebrews. And God is still transforming pagans to patriarchs today. We may think that a certain family member, a friend, or a co-worker is too far gone, but nothing is impossible for God. He's still doing that transformation in the lives of his created beings. And he does it by simply saying, hey, listen, we're all born sinners. We see that in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't reach the perfection of God because of that sin in our lives. And I know I've heard it time and time again. I hear people say, oh, I'm a good person. God will accept me. But when you get to heaven someday and he says to you, uh, why should I let you into heaven? And you say, well, I was just a good person. And he says, well, I don't think you are. And, and God will say, in fact, I know that you're not a good person. He says, I gave the Ten Commandments. And let me just go through a couple of those with you to see if you're really a good person. Have you ever told a lie? You'll stand before God and you can't lie at that point. Yeah, I've told a lie. Have you ever um, taken anything that doesn't belong to you? You've been something small. Yeah, I've done that. Oh, no. Have you ever used my name as a cuss word? Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Have you ever hated someone in your heart or looked at someone with lust in your heart? And you're like, yeah, I've done all. He says, those are just five of the Ten Commandments. And God will say to you, I've also written in my word that if you break just one of those commandments, as though you've broken all of them. So we can't stand before God someday and say, you can let me in because I'm a good person because none of us are good. We're all sinners. And we need a Savior. But here's another incredible truth about God, that, he, that we are loved by God. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. Guess what? We're part of the world. Every one of us. That he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
that's another great truth that we can hold on to, that we are loved by God. We're saved by Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4 tell us this, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He came alive again on the third day according to the Scriptures. All of this was foretold by the prophets of old. And Jesus fulfilled those prophecies. So we're saved by Christ, and guess what? We're headed to the promised land. I put that in quotes, quote-unquote promised land. We're, we're heading to heaven someday. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 tell us how. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Aren't you glad? The, the grace of God accomplishes what seems humanly impossible, and that's the transformation of a sinner, of a pagan to a patriarch. We all can experience that. We just need to cry out to God. We need to admit that we're a sinner. We need to tell God that we believe that Jesus died, was buried, and came alive again to take our punishment for sin, and we choose to be saved. Maybe you're ready to take that step today. It's the third next step. It's to claim God's gift of salvation by grace through faith. If you mark that one, I encourage you to put your name on the front of your communication card because I want to call and talk to you. That's an incredible decision. It's the greatest decision you're ever going to make in your life. That's to turn from a pagan to a patriarch. Now, God's grace is amazing and transforms anyone who turns to him with their whole heart. But we also know that God is sovereign. And that's the only principle I have today from this passage, is that God's sovereignty brings hope. This introduction to the narrative about Abraham can appear pretty grim. Can it? If you think about it, Tarak is caught up in pagan worship with his family. As we'll see in a moment, uh, Tarak uh, loses a son. His other son is married to a woman who is infertile. And all of this seems pretty hopeless, but God is sovereign, and his sovereignty brings hope. We're going to see that in the coming weeks as we study Abraham. Perhaps our current situation seems just as hopeless, but be encouraged that God is sovereign and in control. And we can claim the, the hope that comes from God for ourselves. I encourage anyone who's feeling hopeless to turn to God and find hope. In verses 28 and 32, we see the two of the characters of this narrative are gone. That's the third point this morning. We see Haran dies in the place of his birth, Ur of the Chaldeans. He dies before his father, Terak. And then Terak lives 205 years and then dies in Haran. And so that ends this part of the passage this morning. But let me just review with you a little bit. Do you need to glorify God for accomplishing the impossible? Again, I encourage you to do that this afternoon with friends and family. Do you need to claim the promise and truth that God can and will accomplish what is humanly impossible in your situation? Maybe just take that home with you today. Are you ready to claim God's gift of salvation by grace through faith? Do you need to find hope in God through your hopeless situation? And then as a body of believers, my challenge is we can model glorifying God and claiming his promises so that others will see our faith in a God who accomplishes, accomplishes what seems humanly impossible. As we close today, I want to ask you this question. How many of you would consider planting a garden during the winter months? Anybody? I'm not talking about in a greenhouse. That's what I'm talking I'm talking about in the frozen ground. How many of you would consider doing something like that? Most of us wouldn't. Because it doesn't seem logical, right? It seems impossible. Those plants aren't going to survive. But Tim Myers didn't allow this in the impossible to stop him. Tim Myers is a farmer in Alaska. Here's a picture of him. 
where the soil was rich but frozen. Conventional wisdom says that farming where the ground never fully thaws is impossible or at least impractical, but through savvy practices and hard work, Tim has become a permafrost farmer, growing organic food on his 17 acres of land, proving that even the most barren frozen land can be fruitful. Isn't that amazing? God just gave him wisdom and grace to do what seems humanly impossible. Now, I'm not going to try to grow a garden this winter. I'm just telling you. <laughs> I don't know. I know some of you have your uh, greenhouses going, and that'll be great. I'll just let you do that. But, but that's the kind of God that we serve, whose grace just is able to do what seems humanly impossible. And we're going to just continue to see that truth unfold as Abraham uh, is called to go to the promised land, to Canaan, and uh, as he continues to, to be obedient to God. And so as we just uh, contemplate that big idea today, and as I commit it to the Lord in prayer, as the worship team comes, would you just bow your heads with me? Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this incredible promise that your grace uh, just is able to accomplish what seems impossible in our, in our understanding. But Lord, nothing is impossible with you. And we just thank you for that today. Help us to rejoice in that. Help us to share with others um, how you've done that in our lives. And Lord, as we wait for you to continue to do that, will we be patient and will we just trust in you? We just ask this all in your precious son's name. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together.